So today, we're in part 15, I think it is, but don't hold me to that. I lost count a long time ago, in James. And obviously, we only have two more weeks left. So uh, today, last week, James is, uh, was talking about the oppression of people. And today he's going to change the topic. Today he's going to, 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 and he's going to almost, he's going to become compassionate and try and tell us uh, something else now. He's moving topics. He was saying, hey, you don't want to oppress people. You need to be generous. You need to, you need to love people and you need to, you need to encourage people. And now he moves and and uh, starts talking about the people who are suffering. So following James' intense condemnation of them people, because they have put their hope in money, and that was last week, people who put their hope in money instead of Jesus, he is going to now try to comfort the people that are suffering and going through stuff. And I'm sure... That there's people in this room today that need this message today. They need this message today because they're going through something in their lives today. Or maybe in two weeks they'll need this message. But this is a message that we need to hold on to if we're going to follow Jesus. So, James starts this verse... By saying these words, be patient. We love them words, don't we? Actually, he uses be patient. He uses four, he uses the word four times patient, but he also says steadfast, which is basically being steadfast is patient on steroids. So, so he uses the, the, the idea of being patient a lot in this text, okay? And in today's age, we have become more and more impatient. You know, everything is faster than ever used to be. You know, I think everybody could remember having conversations around a table and asking a question and nobody knew the answer around the table. And you had to either go to the library and find out the answer or you had to wait till you meet, met somebody that knew the answer to that question Before you got the answer. Not anymore. You carry a computer in your pocket, most of us, and we could just pull it out and go, where is Albuquerque? (laughs) Anyway, near Texas, somewhere, because they're flying to Texas, so, hey, but anyway, but anyway, you could get the answer immediately, immediately. So what's that, what's that done to you? How many people in this room, honestly, in the last month have got mad at their phone because it's not working fast enough? Honestly. Or their computer because it's not working fast enough. Because that spinny thing starts turning and you're like, 
Or, but still, if you've not got very fast internet, your Netflix or your uh, streaming system just starts going. And you're going, look, I paid to watch football. And it's not coming up on my TV. And I'm missing something. You, you, <laughs> you, you, under, you understand, having stuff faster has not made us more patient. How many people drive through fast food lanes? And when there's more than three cars in front of you, and they're taking time because, by the way, I feel sorry for people that work at fast food stores today since COVID because there is no help. But everybody in the car that goes into that drive-thru is, a, is a not a very nice person usually. I nearly, I nearly said something I shouldn't say in church then. But they're not nice people because they're driving and they, they got up. Ten minute, they're leaving 10 minutes late to get to work, but they've got to stop and get their Starbucks or they've got to stop and get their McDonald's pop before they go anywhere because, but they don't want to be late for work. So they get up, but they leave 10 minutes, don't allow enough time to go through the drive-thru. There's only two people working in McDonald's. And by the way, the one on uh, Northridge where my wife hangs out quite often, they sometimes only have the manager working because the workers call in sick. So there's one person that's at this window taking your order, then running here and doing all the stuff to prep your stuff, and then got to go back here and take your order. And, by the, and you're going, I'm going to be late for work, or I need this right now. Because we have not become... Less patient because everything's faster. We beca- I mean, we've become less patient because everything is less faster. So we want it immediately. Take your children or grandchildren, for instance. When you used to drive somewhere when you was a kid, and you'd take a three or four hour trip, you was in the back of the car, what did you do? Look out the window, play I Spy. Look out the window. And when you said, are you, yeah, yeah, your dad reached back and goes, shut up, we're not here yet. <laughs> okay, but now you can go anywhere and you can give your child a device. And if, in some, some cars now, they put TVs in the back so you can entertain your children while you're driving somewhere. And what do they say? They don't ask if they're there yet. Yeah, they go, they've got a tablet, they've got... Games they can play, they've got movies they can watch. They don't say, oh, well, yeah, that. I'm bored. I'm bored. And by the way, we all suffer from that. How many people sit at, ha- at their house or when they've got a few minutes, pick up their phone and check their Facebook, check their uh, whatever your, your, uh, your uh, stuff is that you want to look at. You're picking it up and you're either searching for something or you're checking your social media, whatever, whatever one it is, because we oh, oh, it just pinged. There's a red thing there. Ah, I've got to check it because we have no patience. We have no patience. But as believers, as believers, James is going to tell us. That we're going to go through times of suffering 
that will come. But as believers, we are to endure with patience and steadfastness, keeping our eyes focused on one thing, the Lord Jesus himself. That's it. He's compassionate and merciful to his children in every single circumstance you're going to go through. A lot of the things that I just mentioned are trivial patience. People go, well, I, I, I have trouble with patience with my wife or patience with my kids or patience with uh, driving. Uh, that's not the patience we're talking about today. That's the Bible definitely talks about that we're supposed to have that sort of patience. But the patience we're going to talk about is different. You see, we need preserving glad-hearted faith in God. And it, that requires a patience that is different to all other patiences. You see, David, uh, today James is going to give us five ways. There's five ways in this text to be patient which is something that is very relevant today because we're not patient. We're not patient with God. We're not patient in anything. We want it now. It's like our prayer life. Gene, how long is it we've been praying for you, son? But it's actually, it's been on the prayer list for about a year. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying. We want it now, but God's got different timing than we do. We, and by the way, he might have not answered it the way we want to, it to be answered. He answers it the way he needs it to be answered. We need patience. He starts off by saying, we need patience. Be patient. The Lord is coming. The first part of of. Verse 7 says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See, James is saying Christian history is linear. Christian history is a line from here to here. It's a straight line. It's, it, that is Christian history. It's not a circle. It's a straight line. We're heading towards something, and it's good. Jesus is coming back. And by the way, we're a little bit closer now than we were when we got here. We don't know when it's going to happen. It might not happen in your lifetime. But we're a little bit closer. It definitely didn't happen in the, the people that James was writing to's lifetime. But he's telling them, be patient because the Lord is coming. He didn't say when. He just said that's why we need to be patient. Because he is coming. See, James is saying Christian history is linear. We're heading away from something and towards the coming day of the Lord. See, Revelations 21, 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. By the way, I will tell you this. Right now, the world we stand on is not going to be destroyed. I get that from this text. Okay? Just a side note. God is not in the destruction business, by the way. The last time I checked, he was in the redemption business. He's going to make this world new. 
He's going to bring the new Jerusalem down to this world. Not destroy something and remake it. Because if he was going to do that, by the way, he would have destroyed mankind and the earth that he created and the universe he created and started afresh. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says he's going to make things new. He's going to create this and make it new. He's going to bring it down. He's going to make the earth new again, whole like it was supposed to be. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you know what's interesting about that? Is that how does every good, not today's ones, but like Cinderella, uh, Snow White, how do they end up? What, how, what it, and they got married and they lived happily ever after. Do you know why all them stories end like that? I mean, they actually don't end like that, but how, why they end like that is because that is actually, I believe every movie, every story that's ever told has the root of our faith in it. Okay, Th- that is what the story is at the end. That is what the story is. Our groom is going to come down and we're going to be married and happily ever after. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, happily ever after. See, that is, it, 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 it's amazing how, how secular shows and movies show us actually the craving for Jesus and the craving for a God who controls the universe. He goes on, and and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We sang three songs today, and everybody who sang, by the way, and I was noting why I'm singing. It's so funny because they tie in so well with the message today. It is, blows me away. God is good. We sang, the last song we sang was called, Is He Worthy? And there's a line that says, new creation, new creation is coming. Okay? And we sang... It is. We sang it is. But I want to ask you, when was the last time you thought about Jesus coming back? You should be thinking about it every day. You should be thinking about Jesus coming back every day. It should be something that you know is going to happen. Because if we think about it every day, we'll live like he's coming back today. So it will help us to live differently. That is why he says, the Lord is coming, hold on. Live like he's coming back now, today. Don't live like he's coming back in a, another millennium. He's coming back today. Act like he's coming back today. He is coming back. 
We don't know when. That's why he tells you, I'm you, just going to, don't worry about when I'm coming back. Live like I'm coming back. So James starts out by saying, hang in there. Hang in there. Because the Lord is coming back. And even if this world has troubles, even if you don't, he doesn't come back in your lifetime, there's no weeping, no mourning, no struggles. This life is short. Have patience. He's coming back. Be patient. God is accomplishing something in you. He continues that verse by saying, until the coming of the Lord. And then he goes, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, God uses both joys and sorrows to conform us into his image of his son. Romans 8, 28 says this, 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together. Most people know I'm standing here because my father-in-law died. Do you think that was a good thing? I don't think it was a good thing for Sue or Shelley or Jeff. They lost a loved one. But God used that because he uses all things, not just some things, to get his glory, to get his purpose. For those whom he forsake, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. See, we think sometimes that our difficulties, our struggles are punitive. They're punishment because we're not having enough quiet time or we're not doing the right things. But that's not true. God uses our difficulties. He uses our struggles. God is using them to shape and mold us. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. People, this is New Testament. This isn't wrathful God from the Old Testament that everybody thinks. This is New Testament saying, By the way, the Lord disciplines you. If you're not living rightfully, He is going to discipline you. Guess how he disciplines you? If you've got a drug addiction and he wants you, he leaves you in it until you get to the bottom and you need him. He allows you, he allows your own sin 
to discipline you. A loving father. When, I'm ra- when I was raising my kids. If my kids do something wrong, they need to be disciplined. By the way, I still discipline my grandchildren. That was part of the condition that I, if I watched them and they did something, I could tell them off. Because I'm not watching children that I can't discipline. Just telling you. So don't leave, me with my ki- don't leave your grandkids with me because I am going to discipline them. I'm just telling you. Because I think discipline needs to be. You don't need to beat your children is not what I'm saying. But they need to be disciplined. Okay? If you've told your, uh, your child to stay out of the road and they just keep going in the road, are you going to let them play in the road? Or are you going to pull them out the road and tell them off? You're going to correct their behavior because you love them. You're not doing it because you don't love them. You're doing it because you... Most parents that do not discipline their kids really don't deeply love their children. That's probably going to come back and bite me sometime in my history. But... It's, it, it's really true because there needs to be discipline in a relationship. You're trying to mold them. That is why God allows the disciplines and allows stuff to come into our life to mold us. My growth has always came when stuff has been tough or I've needed to be chastised for something because it wasn't good. The same goes for you. See, God uses them to build confidence and he also uses them, the discipline and struggles to knock down our idolatry. You see, if you struggle with a sin and it is holding you back, He allows the punishment of that sin to affect you. So you realize that that sin is not going to save you. There's only one who can save you. So in our struggles and our joys, our losses and our fights, we need to not lose hope. But James 1, going back to James 1, verses 2 and 4, said... Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it as joy when you're going through stuff. Wow. I'm struggling and I've got to count it joy. We're going to get to a good part in a minute. But count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness, which is steadfastness. Patience on steroids. Because if you can work through something, if God sends a trial in your way and you get to the end of that trial, the next time something comes up like that, you are going to be prepared to go through it. You are going to be patient while you're going to go through it because you know who's in charge and it's not you. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is an amazing promise. And that starts at James. And now he's come back to it to end his book. 
There's going to be trials. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. We live in a broken world. This world is broken. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. That is why people have cancer. That is why people die of heart attacks. That is why there's so much sickness and death in this world because it's broken. Not because it's healthy. It's broken. And we can't do anything to change that, by the way. We can push the darkness back, but we can't change the fact that this world is broken. Only God can, and he's not going to do it till his son returns. Now, we need to be patient with each other. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So we're not supposed to grumble at each other. We're not supposed to grumble about each other. And by the way, as your pastor, I've heard a lot of it lately. Just saying. It's funny how this text comes up right now. God is good. All the time. God is good. You're receiving the same grace as others. That's what he's saying here. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. You receive the... Is the people, and you don't have to put up your hands, I'm just asking a question, in this church that annoy you? I mean, I'm just saying... Out loud. I don't want anybody to volunteer information here. Okay. That is not what I'm asking. I'm just, mentally in your head, is there people in this church that annoy you? Don't shake your head, nod your head. I don't want to know. Okay. Guess what? You annoy people in this church. You annoy people in this church. Screw tape letters. If you haven't read it, this is one of C.S. Lewis's best fictional works ever. It's imagined, his imagination in this book is amazing. Uh, in chapter 2, it says this. It's screw tape is writing letters to a guy named, a, a little minion named Wormwood. Screw tape is his uncle. My dear Wormwood. I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penitence. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of this situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adults Adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and now and are now with us. All ha- the habits of the patient, that's the Christian, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. And he goes on to say, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. 
Do not misunderstand me, Wormwood. I don't mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as the army, as an army with banners, that I confess is a spectacular which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But unfortunately it is quite invisible, but fortunately it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. So he's saying what the church is right now is a shack on a, on a, on a, on a, a estate. That's it. We're just a shack. We don't see the whole picture. Okay? That's what he's saying. So this guy doesn't see the whole picture, so he doesn't know the whole picture. He goes on. When he gets to his pew and looks round him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has here for avoided. So, so now he's come to church, this Christian in the book, and he's around the people, and all the people that he's around are actually people from his neighborhood that he's actually tried to avoid his whole life before he became a Christian. Now he's sitting in the pews next to him. And he goes on a little bit down. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind. Which he supposes to be spiritual, but in fact is largely pictorial. So he's imagined what Christians should be like. And he says, no matter your patience. Thanks to our father below, he is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors, neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. See, I confess, I believe in demonic warfare. Okay? I believe there's demons out there. I don't believe the devil is tempting me. Okay? Because I'm not that important. But I believe there is demonic forces at hand in the world. And, and I believe that we have sin nature built inside of us that is still inside of us. Even though we're saved, we're still fighting a battle. God is fighting this battle inside of us to, to purify us. But we're not fixed. We're not in heaven yet. We're, the story's not ended yet. So we're not perfect. So we're still fighting it. So in our minds, we find reasons to grumble about other people in the church. Because here's what I'll tell you. You can always find somebody that you can, you could be, well, if you're not, if you're the worst person in church, you might not find somebody, but you're always going to find somebody that you can say, well, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. So I can grumble about that person because it takes the eyes off of me and puts the eyes on the other person. I was just telling the men's group yesterday that I, I uh, was reading a book and it, it's basically about missions and it, 
talks about uh, missions are good. I'm not saying that, but it says the problem with was with a lot of Christians is we we choose missions and to and to pour into missions because it takes the focus off of me, puts the focus on saving other people. And what we really need to do, what we really need to do, is do missional work on ourselves first. We need to be working on ourselves too, as well as saving, trying to save other people. We need to be saved too. We need to be worked on too. And we forget that because if we can push it on somebody else, I don't have to worry about me. I can grumble about your sin. I can grumble about your sin. And it takes the eyes off of me. So, the problem with this is, God's grace for us is lavish and extravagant. You do realize that, don't you? His grace for you is, is, is lavish and extravagant. He went to a deep cost to buy you. And he loves you throughout your progress and sanctification. As you're going on that linear line towards the final day, okay? No matter where you are on that line, he loves you. Some people are up here, some people are down here. He loves them all the same. This is what I'm going to tell you. Because he was lavish and extravagant, he knew what he was buying on the cross. He knew he was buying broken equipment. He bought the package, you know, the the jigsaw puzzle I just seen at Dale's house that's going to be, he's going to get it all done and there's going to be two pieces missing. I hope there's not two pieces missing now because that would be like weird, but it's broken. I'm using his example. It would be broken. God knew what he was doing when he purchased you. And he's not going to come along and say, uh, they're not doing a good job. Forget them. And we need to realize how much mercy and grace has been extended to us. See, that's the problem. When we grumble about other people and we worry about other people, we think we're better than them. We didn't think we had as much grace, as we didn't need as much grace to save us as they needed. So we can grumble about them. We think we're better so we don't grumble, uh, we, we, we don't need to talk about ourselves, we can talk about other people that needed more grace than us. So we'll always find somebody that needs more grace than us. And that's because we don't realize how bad we are. Not because they need more grace, it's because we don't realize how bad we were when he paid for us at the cross. So we need to realize that it would be like the guy who went to G- went in the story. Uh, Peter had asked about uh, how many times should I forgive, and then he tells a story, and the story is about a guy who begs to have his debt forgiven, but then he goes right outside the door and says, "Pay me my money, or I'm throwing you in jail." That's how we act. That's what the story's really about. Do you realize what you've been saved from? You don't deserve it. But the beauty is, Jesus cannot love you any more than he did when you was as deep as you were in your sin. 
That's amazing. Because when I first became a Christian, I thought I could earn some more love. He can't love me anymore. He's not capable because he loves me so much. He is not capable of loving me anymore and he's not capable of loving you anymore. You can't get better enough for him to love you any more than he already loves you. That's not a reason to stay where you are though. Just so you know. We should be patient. God's promises are true. This is my favorite part of the text, by the way, because it's the weirdest part. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. And behold, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job! Why did he use Job? You know, here's the thing about Job, is Job would not be a person I would pick to have words of encouragement. Hey, you want some encouragement about steadfastness? We're going to talk about Job. And you want some about suffering? Now we can talk about Job. See, if you haven't read the book of Job, a bunch of uh, the angels are walking past God, and the accuser comes back, this is my paraphrase, comes past, and he goes, have you seen them people down there? And he goes, they only worship you. For what they give you. And he goes, hey, i got an idea, God says. Why don't you take my uh, servant, Job. All I ask, because here's the thing about God. God puts parameters around what the accuser can do. He cannot do anything without God's permission. Okay. So he says, take my servant Job. Take everything he has away from him if you want. But you cannot touch his life. So the accuser goes away. We don't know how long this goes on for. Well, he loses all his livestock. He loses all his seven children. Whipped up in a tornado. The only thing that's left is his wife. And that's not a good thing, by the way. We'll find out in a little bit. But, but so, so, Job is there. Nothing. Nothing but his wife left. His property's gone. Everything's gone. And he puts sackcloth and ashes on. And he, he worships God. You give and take away. That's where we get that song from, by the way. That's what he was singing. He was on his knees. You see, Matt Redman didn't make that song up. He, uh, he, was, on the, he was on his knees and he's, he's like, the accused is now back up in heaven. This is chapter two. And he goes, how did it go with uh, my servant Job? He said, hold on a minute. I can hear him singing. Oh, yeah. He's, he's still worshiping me. 
Yeah. And, and the accuser goes, well, that's because you didn't let me touch his, him. So God, again, gave him permission to give him illnesses, but to not kill him again. So he, the accuser goes back down, inflicts Job with horrible, all over his body, sores and things, where he's so bad, he's in the corner scraping his skin with clay pot to get all all the dead skin off of him because he's so infected with this thing. And then, this is why, you see, then his wife says, curse God and die. He'd have been better off if, if, if the devil had left one of his dogs and took his wife and his dog could comfort him at this point and lick his wounds. But no, the devil knew what he was doing and he left his wife to tell him to curse God. But what did Job do? He didn't do anything. He didn't curse God. And this is supposed to be like God's promises are true. And if we only knew this part of the story, we'd be like, oh, wow. But remember, just like we do, James' people knew the end of the story, the last five chapters of, of James. You see, I will tell you this. God's promises are true, and the accuser, the devil, he is just a dog on a leash. He cannot do anything without God's permission in your life. So just remember this. I will tell you this. God doesn't make things happen. But he does allow things to happen. When you're struggling, them struggles came because God allowed them to happen in your life. God never promises, never promises that there will be no suffering. He promises he'll always be with you. He'll go, there, he'll go through the problems with you. But he never promises that this life has no pain or no suffering. Because everybody in here could testify differently. See, I like what Augustine Hippo uh, said. He said, when we look at our lives, we look at them like we've got our face smashed up. I wish I had a stained glass window because that's what the thing is. Up to a stained glass window. All we see is all the cracks. We don't see anything but a bunch of different colors of glass and cracks. But when you pull that away from you, there's a beautiful piece of art. You see, we see with the glass, of the stained glass right here, God sees the whole picture. That's, that's beautiful. God's seen the pain that that we go through, and he sees the result of that pain. I mean, I I said, I'm here because my wife's dad died. She couldn't even, we weren't even in the same country when he died. I told her I'll never step foot in church. I told my English teacher, I'll never speak in front of people. I failed. I wasn't very good at it. I failed English, by the way. Just so you know, that's why I, I, did, I, I didn't take geography. That's why I don't know where anything is. And I failed English. Okay. But, but God used them, that stuff to mold me. 
into who I am today. And he's going to continue to use the pain and suffering in my life to mold me into the, the next step and the next step and the next step. Every time I've grown, I've gone through something that was hard to go through. But I went through it with God now and not on my own. We need to be patient with each other seriously. So he ends on chapter 12 where he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. There's supposed to be a culture of a group of believers. We're supposed to be a family. We're supposed to be there for each other. And it's funny that he goes here because the Levitical law said you, you, you would swear by God. And if you, didn't, if you broke that promise, you would, there would be punishment for breaking that promise. But that James says, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. How many people in this room are people pleasers? <laughs> there, there's quite a few people pleasers in this church. I will just tell you that. There's quite a few people pleasers in this church. You know, by the way, they act. Okay, but there's quite a few people pleasers in the church. I think everybody has a little bit of it, usually, but, but there's, some, there's some people that are very, they don't want to say no. So they just say yes. And that's what this, let your yes be, look, we should say yes when we can. We should help when we can. We should be there for our brothers and sisters when we can. But when we can't, we don't need to make up stories like, um, I've got somewhere I've got to be, my grandkids are doing this, or I'm just, you, you know what I mean? I think some of us do that sometimes. We make up excuses for not doing. We need to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't help, but I'm gonna, I'll, if I know anybody that can help you, I'll find them and I will put them in touch with you. Not say yes just because we need to say yes because we need to feel important or we need to feel like we can't let anybody down. Because I'll tell you this. Every time you say yes, eventually you're going to say let somebody down. Eventually you're going to let somebody down. You can't please all the people all the time. You can't. You're going to be tugged because what happens with yes people is that People keep asking you to do stuff and you keep saying yes because you don't know how to say no. And by the way, I struggle with this. I'm learning to say no. But you have to say no. There needs to be boundaries in our life. Don't say yes because you just want to say yes. Be serious about your yeses. If it's something that you think you need to be involved in, you say yes. But if it's something that you're not filled to be involved in, say no and mean no. Don't just do it because you feel obligated. We need to treat each other with the respect that needs to be treated. We are a, a group of believers together, trying to do life together. We are all different. We all have different personalities. 
And we've all been put together here for God. I believe everybody that's in this church today is here because God asked them to be here today. And like I said at the beginning of the message, there's some people that are going to need this today where they're going to have to take God seriously on his promises and know that they're going through something right now, but he's with them and he's going to keep them strong and that their brothers and sisters are going to pray for them. And when you say you're going to pray with them, that's another yes thing. If you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, pray for them. And I know because I've done it. So I make notes now. I make notes on my phone. If somebody's having surgery, I've got notes that pop up so I can pray for them at that time because it's important to me. And I know if I don't write it down, I'm not going to remember. So I have my, my phone, which that's why I think technology is great in some ways. My phone can go beep and I look and it says, oh, can you pray for such and such because they're having a surgery today? Or pray for... Uh, this person because they're going to court today or pray for this person because they're struggling or whatever. But we need to set reminders for ourselves. When we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. And the best thing to do, really, and I'm not good at this, but the best thing to do is that if, when you say, I'll pray for you. Right now. Not, I'm going to pray for you later. I'm going to pray for you. And pray for them. Right there. Right then. You could still pray for them when they're going into their surgery. But you, or whatever it is. But you pray for them right there. Right then. Doesn't have to be a long prayer. Doesn't have to be a special prayer. God talks our basic language. We don't need to make it special. Uh, we don't have to speak some holy language to speak. We don't have to make people feel uncomfortable when we pray. We can just say, hey, Lord Jesus. You meet a stranger. I know Dale does this probably all the time, but you meet a stranger and, and they're going through summer and you say, can I pray? And you pray, you go, hey, God, you're in control. Take care of this. Don't make it weird. Don't put a bunch of how great thou arts in there. You know, don't make anybody feel uncomfortable, but pray for them. Very few people, very few people, if they are struggling, will turn down an offer of prayer. Very few people. I don't care if they don't believe in God of any sort. They will go. Well, my, it's not working for me. Maybe, maybe whoever you talk to, it'll work for you. Because God does answer prayer. And he does, by the way, he'll probably do that quicker sometimes when you do that with people who don't believe than he does with us because he wants to build maturity and build us up and make us stronger in our faith and our belief. So he allows our prayers to take a little bit longer sometimes when we're praying for people that don't believe. Sometimes that prayers, it's like, damn, God, you move fast. I didn't even see that coming. I just finished praying and wow, bam, it's done. You know, and it really is. Sometimes I've, I've witnessed that, by the way. I've witnessed where I've had to pray a long time for something, for somebody else that, uh, that is a believer. But then I pray for somebody that's not a believer and damn, God goes, it's fixed. Don't worry about it. Because he wants to show them something. Let your yes be yes. So if you say you're going to pray for somebody, pray for them. Let your no be no. So if you don't want to do something, 
don't say, yes, I'll do that and then not do it. Be a man or woman of your word. We're brothers and sisters. We need to respect each other. We need to not talk bad about each other. We need to know that God is coming and it's not going to be long. It could be another 200 years. It's not going to be long. He could come back before the end of the games today when everybody's watching their football. The people who support the Bears right now probably hope he does. So, <laughs> but, but, uh, but here's the thing is, we need to love each other more. We need, we need to be there for everybody that's struggling. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we see another brother or sister suffering, we need to come alongside them, encourage them. And you can encourage them by telling them the stories, how you went through something. Because that's how you know your faith is strong. When you can walk through troubles. And at the end of the day, you're stronger because of it. At the end of the day, you know who's in charge and it's not you. Jesus is in control. He always has been and always will be. Whether you want to believe that or not, that's up to you. But Jesus is in control. Nothing that happens to you is by accident. God is going to use it to glorify him. Even, even the thing, and think about this. How many people here have lost everything they own? Seven children. You know, there's nobody else in the Bible. The only person in the Bible that's lost more than Job was Jesus. I think that's why James decided to use Job as an illustration. Because there's nobody in this room that suffered as much as Job. And what did Job do? Worship his God. Worship his God. Just remember... He's there for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you're an amazing God. We thank you that you're a God who allows stuff to come into our lives to grow us to maturity. That, that will touch us in, in times that we don't even realize. You will affect us. You will heal us as we're talking about next week as we final, we get to the final part of James and we talk about healing, God. There's a time that we will be healed. Whether it's on this side of the cross or when we get to heaven, we will be healed. Healed emotionally, physically, mentally. Because you are a great God who keeps all of his promises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.